We were young until we weren't, but the books stay the same. jump into it i do want to apologize for my uh radiator clicking behind me if anyone could hear that <laughs> hopefully my mic won't pick it up but it does like when it's actually you know heating it does this, this i clicking, can tell you so i apologize your microphone does pick it up that's okay oh, it's not no. a big deal our listeners no. can deal with it <laughs> they already have to listen to our weird pronunciations and things it's fine <laughs> oh man where should we start let's start with women since we just ended with Shelob and I want to talk about women <laughs> women can't live with them can't live without them but apparently in Tolkien's world you can kind of live without them <laughs> <laughs> you really you can we didn't really talk about it in fellowship and so I think it's important that we talk a little bit about women here because like Tolkien really didn't know what to do with the ladies. <laughs> and I think that, like, there certainly has been a lot of conversation about, like, Eowyn, Arwen, to a lesser extent Gladriel. I think Gladriel's probably where he is his most interesting female character, at least thus far. And I don't want to talk about Eowyn too much in this book, because I think we'll talk about her more in Return of the King. There's certainly something about, like, two of the, like four female-shaped uh -huh. characters we've gotten. Um, other than Shelob, I guess, who is also female. But uh, are hot for Aragorn. Like, Arwen and Eowyn. And there's a lot that could be said there. But I, I was mostly very interested in this book, in Shelob, thinking about femininity, and especially evil femininity. Because thus far, we've only gotten good women. We're all just mostly generically good, other than Galadriel, who's, like, powerful, good. Shelob is interesting. She's, like, the monstrous woman, right? Very much in the vein of Grendel's mother. There's a, there's a very classic thing that happens not only in Beowulf, but happens in the Odyssey, the Aeneid, like that, where women normally act as a way for, like, a gateway in a certain sense for like men to enter the underworld mm -hmm. or they are at the gateway. And you could certainly read this tunnel system as like the gateway to the underworld that is Mordor. And so Shelob's positioning there is like very much a classical sort of thing. But I find it very interesting that her evil is an evil of consumption, of wanting to devour. We don't to get told that she chooses gender-wise, but, like, let's be pretty clear, she's probably exclusively mm. eating male flesh. You will taste man flesh! And, of course, the way in which Sam wounds her, in which she impales herself uh, yes. on a pointy object. It's uh -huh. very sexual. The crypt <laughs> is used. Oh it's very interesting that, like, the female-coded evil figure that we get is one that is a very, even though it's a monstrous figure, and she's certainly not sexy, it is very sexually coded. Well, she's sexy to some. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> she's going to bring hot girl summer back. Hashtag just girl things. <laughs> <laughs> 
But yeah, I think that it's very interesting that, I mean, very much in the way that like scholars have talked about how sexual Beowulf's fight with Grendel's mother is. If you read between the lines there, it's sex. It's very violent sex. (laughs) And you can certainly make the same argument here. She is a very sexualized evil. Explicitly female sexualized evil in that she wants to consume men. Of course, like... (laughs) Oh, I don't know how far to go down this road, but there's like... In medieval Renaissance literature, there's a certain idea that like women want to consume male energy and they do this... Through like no please no no too sexy no 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 no, 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 it's too sexy please that's where we get uh, going further on the idea of the like vagina dentata or like you know the vagina that devours Mm -hmm. so basically what I'm saying is (laughs) she love is like distilled sexism in a bottle (laughs) and she is a monstrous femininity like at her core. Well, when I woke up today, I did not think that we would be talking about Vagina Dentata on our children's book rereading podcast. So this is delightful for me. You know, I it's so funny to think because I am sure that Tolkien would be aware of this and would feel, I cannot imagine this is the read he would want to take away from us. <laughs> I I think it's great. I love that, that we're, you know, going to be talking very explicitly about sex on this podcast and about a freaking spider, which I think it's also fitting because like spiders, much like other insects, that there are some spiders who, after mating, devour the male. And there is this repeated motif of evil devouring the world that is exemplified in Shelob. I mean, I'm I'm digging. I'm digging the uh this take that you're that you're coming in with. Well, I just think it's it's important because I think it's always especially when you have like a a male creator who like <laughs> clearly doesn't <laughs> yes, ha- yeah. know how to do woman. Phrasing boom <clears throat> inappropriate. How that creator does evil women <laughs> is like somewhat important to examine. And so I think especially when you're when you contrast it with like the other versions of women we get, which are very much versions of women who like know how to stay in their lane, if that makes sense. Like Galadriel's big scene is her deciding that she will not take the ring. And that is not her place to do. And as we'll get with Eowyn in Return of the King, like, she does the whole warrior maiden thing. But then once that's done, she's like, and now I will put up my shield and get hitched. Whereas, like, Shelob is the opposite of that. Like, Mm -hmm. she is, like, this evil that does devour and take in what she is not supposed to take. And, of course, there's also the very interesting dynamic with Sauron that gets alluded to where, like, he knows she exists and kind of likes that she's hanging out there guarding the way into Mordor. There's this reference where we're told that, like, sometimes he'll send prisoners there for her to eat. And the narrative tells us, And sometimes, as a man, may cast a dainty to his cat. And then, in parentheses, his cat, he calls her, but she owns him not. Sauron would send her prisoners, etc., etc. So, <laughs> that's also an interesting dynamic. Yeah, there, there's a 
interesting relationship there. It's almost like a friends with benefits kind of thing that's going on, <laughs> I guess you could say. Just riffing on this this whole analogy that yeah. we're making. <laughs> well, and, and there's certainly something about the fact that she's cast as his pet yeah. in a weird way. Oh, yeah. That is interesting. <laughs> Especially because like we're explicitly told like she is... Yeah, this primordial evil. She was there before the ring. She was there before, you know, the first stone was laid on the tower. And yet he inevitably is above her and in some ways possessing of her. And she can't just be this thing lurking there. Like, she still is not under his power because, like, she's not, like, actively working for him. But, like, there's a way in which he still has power over her. But there, there's also a feeling, at least I got this, and feel free to rebut me, but there's a feeling that Sauron's idea of his relationship to Shelob is misrepresented. Like, it's a lot more impotent, if you will, than he thinks. Shelob doesn't really seem to give a fuck about what Sauron is and who Sauron is and what he wants. She's just like, I'm chilling in my caves. I'm going to eat and devour because, as you said, who doesn't? I don't know. There's a there's a great line. Let me see if I can find it where Tolkien is first describing. Did I not write this down? Uh... (laughs) I mean, like, I think I'm sort of where it's at. It's just what line exactly you wanted. Yeah. She's never never blah, blah, blah. Far and wide, her lesser broods, bastards of miserable mates, her own offspring that she slew, spread from friend gun. Not. Not it. Not it. Gosh darn. Oh, wait, I found it. Ha! Whoa! Ah. Oh, wait, yes, it is literally, I just found, found it too. Okay. Oh, yeah. well, great. But other potencies there are in Middle Earth, powers of night, and they are old and strong. And she that walked in the darkness had heard the elves cry, that cry far back in the deeps of time, and she had not heeded it, and it did not daunt her now. Specifically, uh, Frodo says some magical phrase that activates the, the light of Galadriel. But there, there is something that feels very removed in the way that Grendel's mother did, where it's, like you say, almost entering into a different kind of world where the rules outside of that place don't necessarily apply. So mm. there is this greater battle going on, but in, in kind of in some odd ways, it, it parallels what we get when we go into Fangorn, where Treebeard at one point says that I am on nobody's side because nobody's on my side. And that's the same way here with Shelob, where it's not so much that she is a character or an individual than just a force of nature. It, clearly, a, a, her nature is pure evil, but it's not driven by the same urges of power. It's it's simply, in some ways, really boils down to just survival, and it's survival in its most gluttonous form, right? Mm-hmm. And I and you can sort of relay that into the same sexual energy because, you know, at at its core, sex is about procreation, blah, blah, blah. It it gets at something very primal in ourselves. 
So in some ways, it feels like when Sauron is being very patronizing in his description of of Shelob, or at least the narrative provides us that description, it feels like, oh, dude, you don't know what you're talking <laughs> about at all. You do not own this person in the same way the cat flip the script and look at the cat in that situation. And the cat's just like, I don't give a f about you. Like, sure, you give me food, but that doesn't actually give you power over me. It's just like, sure, I'll eat it, but you're just an idiot giving me free food. I don't know. I get that sense from Shelob that at the very least, she is a lot more powerful than Sauron gives her credit for being. Well, and maybe we can tie that into like, like if, if we are reading her as this sort of natural force, if an evil one. There is a certain sense, like, if you want to read The Lord of the Rings through, like, an ecological lens, you can definitely do that. Yes. Uh, because there's this sense that, like, Saruman and Sauron are constantly, like, violating nature in order to build their weapons, etc. And that they think that they are able to control nature, which certainly the entire plotline with the Ents is, like, directly talking about, like, no, nature's gonna f*** you up yes and so maybe that's kind of in play with shelob too where he's like yeah sauron thinks he can control these natural forces or that they're just like at his bidding but I, i'm i guess my feeling is that because of the the whole thing with the cat that really like made me interested because like you know yes traditionally the reading of like if you're talking about a cat people would be like oh yeah but like does anyone really own a cat but sure. what the the book actually says is that she owns him not. That sort of idea of like, you know, a cat instead owns the owner. That's not the case. She does not have power over him. And that's what the book goes out of its way to tell us is that she has no power over him. Not that he has no power over her. Because of that dynamic, it does make me feel like strange about the whole thing. I think you can definitely read it the way you were saying um, I would say that's a generous reading. I think the book is working against that. <laughs> mm -hmm. But I would certainly prefer that reading. <laughs> I would like my evil woman to have some agency uh -huh, uh -huh. or have more agency. But I think, unfortunately, I don't know. It, this series is uh, very much one in which I think no female character gets to evade some kind of male control. Yes, I, I do think... Of all the characters that probably have the most agency, it would be, uh, I mean, of female characters specifically, it would be Galadriel, uh, who I, I know the, the way you painted, like, she chose to, quote, stay in her lane, end quote. <laughs> I would be more generous and say, like, she made that conscious decision for herself to resist the temptation of the ring, which I think paints her in a better light than, <laughs> than, yes. than your description. I guess, sorry, I just reread Paradise Lost. Uh -huh. So like, I am very much in a place where I'm like, ah, yes, the anti-Eve, the only way we can show women are good is when they don't take the apple and they sure. stay in their home with their husband in their enclosed paradise, aka the woods of Lothorian. Mm -hmm. Sorry. No. <laughs> I've, no bitter I've, female I've, energy. I totally fair. <laughs> You are very much right in, in the way Tolkien depicts women in his books leaves a lot to be desired. And the <laughs> fact that Galadriel is, is the 
best example of him writing a female, and I guess it's a toss up between her and Shelob. It's like, okay, one's basically an ephemeral goddess figure, and then the other one is this natural force of pure evil. <laughs> Not giving women a lot of role models here. Yeah, I mean, it's the Ave Eva. <laughs> yeah. Conundrum. <laughs> you're a Madonna or you're a whore. <laughs> I, I agree. I do think what he's saying, at least with Galadriel and Shelob separately, are very interesting things about feminine mm-hmm. energy. Because in a, in a lot of ways, I would argue that hobbits invoke a feminine kind of energy because they're very homebound and very in in some ways perhaps it's it's not sort of spelled out this way in the books but they do exhibit some of those what are traditionally considered feminine qualities and i think there is this underlying message throughout the book about how you can't fight fire with fire no one can match the might of sauron you just can't so you can't beat them through sheer force of numbers but there's also this implication sauron thinks that the good guy's plan is that they will take the ring and use it for themselves and use it to overthrow sauron there's a very telling line that gandalf says where it has not even entered into sauron's mind that our goal is to destroy the ring so there's this this fact that's established that you can't defeat sauron using his own means you have to approach it somewhere to approach it differently. And I think maybe this is a generous read again, but I do think the book is su- suggesting that the way to defeat Sauron is through a more feminine course of action. Yeah. You know, I <laughs> I will actually fully agree with you on that. I think that The Lord of the Rings is in many ways a condemnation of hypermasculinity. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, like, talking about sort of Faramir versus Boromir, like, right. when Faramir calls out, um, he's talking about how, like, the men of Gondor are descended from, what do you call them, like, the high men? Yeah, the high men, the Numenorians. But that now they've become middlemen because we now love war and valor as things good in themselves, both a sport and an end. And though we still hold that a warrior should have more skills and knowledge than only the craft of weapons and slain, we esteem a warrior nonetheless above men of other crafts. Such is the need of our days. So even was my brother, Boromir, a man of prowess, and for that he was accounted the best man in Gondor. Mm. I will go ahead. Yeah. Oh, no, wait, go. Well, I I just also want to supply another quote from Faramir, which to me reads very feminine coded where he's talking about how basically he would not take the ring for himself. And the reason, he goes on to say, I would see the white tree in flower again in the courts of the kings, and the silver crown return, and Minas Tirith in peace. Minas Anor again as of old, full of light, high and fair, beautiful as a queen among other queens, not a mistress of many slaves, nay, not even a kind mistress of willing slaves. War must be while we defend our lives against a destroyer who would devour all. But I do not love the bright sword for its sharpness, nor the arrow for its swiftness, nor the warrior for its glory. I love only that which they defend, the city of the men of Numenor, and I would have her loved for her memory, her ancient tree, 
agentry? That's an odd word. Her beauty and her present wisdom. Not feared, save as men may fear the dignity of a man old and wise. Yeah. There's very much like a anti, like, rah, rah, man. Yeah. Me smash that is throughout <laughs> this as well. Like, if you want power and strength above all things, you're going to end up like Boromir, who is still understood to be, like, ultimately good intentioned, but, like, because he feels this, like, Faramir also talks about how, like, as much as Boromir respected Aragorn and wanted him to come back, it was one thing for him to feel that way when they weren't in Gondor. And Faramir basically implies that he thinks if they had come back to Gondor together, that Boromir would have started feuding with Aragorn and would have made a bid for the throne, that he yeah. wanted the, that power, um, which we kind of saw foreshadowed at the end of Fellowship. So I think that there is something that can be read in uh, Tolkien as much as he is not good to women, <laughs> certainly does not like the idea of traditional masculinity as it is presented. But, <laughs> um, and I think that there is a way you can read the hobbits as as more feminine seeming. Anytime anyone is cast as like a homebody, yeah, <laughs> like that's automatically very like feminine in energy. But yeah, I think it's interesting the ways in which he tries to take the parts of traditional femininity that he likes and like remove them from women. And I think that you know, talking about some of the male friendships in this series. Which are great. And I do not want to take anything away from those friendships. Like, uh -huh. Gimli and Legolas are great. Merry and Pippin are great. Frodo and Sam are great. They're great! They are beautiful friendships. I love seeing them. I love reading them. I mean, it's what I like about this series, is the bonds between people. But, like, they're bonds between men. And I feel like there's very much him trying to take the nice things away from women and give them to men. And then let men <laughs> bond with each other. <laughs> And not necessarily in a romantic sense, although, like, you can absolutely read it that way if you want to. Sam says, I love you to Frodo multiple times in this book. That's beautiful. You can read that as romance if you, in your heart, want to. But, like, there is a desire, I feel like, to displace that, the bond that is normally between, like, a man and a woman, that sort of lifelong eternal bond, onto men. Hi, Morgan here. Yeah, I can do these too. Woo! Anyhow, I think I, I phrased that last bit a little poorly, and so I wanted to clarify. Lifelong, intense, very intimate bonds can happen between people of any gender, but I do think there is a sense in the section we were talking about, as well as The Lord of the Rings as a whole, that Tolkien doesn't believe women are necessarily a part of those bonds and often tries to make those bonds purely between men. And I think that's really what I was trying to get across. Obviously, the situation in which we normally think of a man and a woman having those close bonds is heterosexual marriage. And I'm not sure you could see in any of the heterosexual relationships in this series the same intimate bonds that you get between men. And so that's really what I was going for here. It's well-intentioned because basically what it comes down to is this, is we are shown throughout this series that power 
corrupts an absolute, power corrupts absolutely, blah, 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 blah. But we, we are, the ways we are shown that, it's that it's the men who are corrupted. We are told that the, the ring wraiths were nine men who desired power above all else and were corrupted by that power. Boromir is the one who turns and tries to attack Frodo. We get a sense that there's something corrupted about the worlds of men that we see in this book. Theoden has been corrupted. So the traditional idea of women could be read as like women, they don't want power. They just want to be left alone at home to cook and take care of the family, which is a very problematic read. Uh, but it does have the benefit of saying to embrace our more feminine sides, to not want to seek out power for the sake of power, to recognize that fighting might be necessary, but that is just a means to an end, and the end should be peace. And peace, for sure, in this book is coded as feminine. Of course, I think you're completely right in that it's ripped away from women in this story and just given by proxy to men which we we need more of those kind of role models in in stories like this it just shouldn't necessarily be at the expense of women so yes i i guess we should also just we've been focusing mostly on shelob and and a little bit on galadriel i, I guess we should talk about eowyn a little bit even though she's not really in this book too much but she is there and she has some pretty prominent moments that in, in my opinion <laughs> don't age very well i, I guess yeah. what i would say is that tolkien is not very good at writing women feeling romantic feelings ah <laughs> uh, oh eowyn so let's start with the good, which is that Theoden leaves her in charge when he leaves, which is great. That was nice to see. Oh, yeah. We love that. That's the good. <laughs> <laughs> Looks like that's it. Got to go. I want to read a line that made me laugh because it's very, very bad. Thus Aragorn, for the first time in the full light of day, beheld Eowyn, Lady of Rohan, and thought her fair. Fair and cold, like a morning of pale spring that has not yet come to womanhood. Hmm. Men, specifically male writers, if you're trying to describe your female characters, do not <laughs> use the word womanhood in any capacity, except maybe ironically, but you gotta make yeah, that really um clear. I think, uh, so there's that one. Oh, and I want to read the line following that and then another line as well. Um, so following that, and she now was suddenly aware of him. Tall heir of kings, wise with many winters, gray-cloaked, hiding a power that yet she felt. For a moment still as stone she stood, then turning swiftly she was gone. Then a couple pages later, uh, she is passing around a cup for them to drink out of. Traditional feminine thing they did. Also, you know, symbol. Total sploosh! Uh, as she stood before Aragorn, she paused suddenly and looked upon him, and her eyes were shining, and he looked down upon her fair face and smiled. But as he took the cup, his hand met hers, and he knew that she trembled at the touch. 
I'm gonna I'm gonna play some like sexy romantic. Yeah, exactly. It is it is a bad bad romance novel. It's uh, Tolkien made the right choice to write epic high fantasy that focused mostly on the landscape because dear God, he should not come within ten feet of a romantic plotline. Yeah, I mean, okay, so like. Fair. Aragorn is hot. I, too, would be like, But, again, if you watch the movies, you've gotten the impression that they've, like, spoken once or twice. They have not. They have exchanged exactly uh, the words that I read. She says one line to him. Um, And Arda, she's trembling to touch him. So, yeah, the, the romance isn't very built up. We're told after that that he looks troubled. And I should mention at this point, we still don't know for sure that he wants to bang Arwen. It's been implied. <laughs> yeah. But, like, we've never seen Arwen speak. We've had no scenes between the two of them. We have no idea that this romance is in the background, which I actually kind of like because I think it's it'll be fun when it's revealed in Return of the King. But, like, yeah, the the romance plotlines, as much as, like, the Aragorn-Arwen plotline in the movies is, like, cheesy and, like, Vigo and Liz have no chemistry. Sure. It's still somehow... <laughs> far better um because yeah there's just the sense that like i guess on the upside at least we are shown female desire i guess that's a plus i'm not entirely sure because like i also think you can go to bad places with female desire but like i guess at least it's not just that like aragorn has his pick of the ladies but that the ladies actively want him i don't know i i i don't know I guess the the generous read on that is that there is some consent here. <laughs> so, you know, it's it's not simply Aragorn coming in and being like, I want you and just taking her. And I once had a professor when well, we were reading through Beowulf and uh, she was talking about the influences of that on to Lord of the Rings. And she was talking about this trend where in Beowulf, the women are merely props. This line, I remember it because I love it. It sounds so nice, but it's terrible. Where the queen of some, I think it might be Hrothgar. Yeah. Don't quote me on that. But the queen is essentially described as a bomb in bed for the battle-scarred king. Yes, that is Hrothgar's wife. Fast forward to Lord of the Rings, <laughs> the books. We get female characters who are, they're not super active, but they're more active in their desire, in their romance. Fast forward to the movies, and the women are even more active than before. And really, you see a lot more of them, and you really get a, a much better sense of their personalities and why they love Aragorn. And so there's this kind of very slow but gradual arc of more female empowerment with each iteration. So you can see Lord of the Rings as, in some sense, an adaptation of Beowulf that improves on the depiction of women in that story. None of it's perfect. Let's be clear about that. Yes. It's not great, but you... I would say, I think Go that... Go star for trying. <laughs> I think that the movies, at least, Eowyn uh, in the movies... Gets to be fully awesome. I mean, I am no man. I know that that's probably a line in the books too, but yes. the way it's done, 
is just um, incredible in the movie. And and I think that she also gets, because you get to see more of her, ugh, I don't want to go into the movies too much, but like, I think it's interesting that in the movies they chose to have her be scared of, of confinement and being confined to this essentially yes. feminine role, which I feel like speaks directly sort of against the books. So I did want to bring that up. Yes, I think that's a very telling change they made to the movies from these books. Right. And I think taken sort of out of that line about her being cold. So I I think that I'll just say that, like, this is probably the only area in which I think that Clive actually did a better job, Mm. which is not saying much because Clive invented (laughs) lipstick gate. But, like, his female characters get a lot more personality agency skills mm-hmm. uh, or other things. So, while Chronicles of Narnia is shit to women, Lord of the Rings is worse. Which is fair. <sighs> Just a kind of side note to that. I will say that I think conceptually what Tolkien is saying with his female characters is a lot more interesting than anything C.S. Lewis ever said in his life. But yes, you're completely right. In terms of actual individual characters, they they aren't really characters. Yet, I feel like we should table the discussion about Eowyn until the next book because we we see a lot more of her then. It, certainly see her speak up a little bit more. Woo! So that is very exciting. But one thing I want to discuss and we've we've touched on it a little bit is uh the environmental message of this book Mm. we get hints of that in fellowship clearly tolkien loves nature but it was kind of just left there in the fellowship here Mm. we get a literal talking tree who (laughs) espouses messages that are very environmentalists at at their core just talking about the history of nature and how it's been neglected certainly by men but also by the elves there there's some trash talk from treebeard against the elves which i find so fascinating because (laughs) up to this point the elves have been held as the pinnacle of creation they are flawless they can do no wrong treebeard offers a rebuttal to that narrative it's really cool i mean a fun fact that i think you will appreciate is that apparently treebeard is loosely based on the character of c.s lewis himself yes (laughs) and uh in some ways the ents are a satire of the oxford fellows who would do a lot of hemming and hawing talking about the issues spend a lot of time talking and talking and talking and you sort of get that sense like haha tolkien's poking fun at academic scholars yippee get those nerds Nerd! Nerd! but i think the more powerful message is that we see the trees finally able to speak up for themselves and basically give a big old f- you to the world and the way the world has treated them in fact um i think you mentioned the the list of living creatures that Treebeard brings up yes when he's trying to figure out who the hell the hobbits are and he starts with the four what he calls free peoples 
and I think it's very telling the order that it comes in. Eldest of all, the elf children. Dwarf the Delver, dark are his houses. Ent the earthborn, old as mountains, man the mortal, master of horses. So men, and we, we the, the narrative alludes to this later where I think it's Théoden. It's either Théoden or Eremir. Acknowledge that basically men are full of themselves, think that history sort of circles around them. But in fact, to the ends, men are just like a moment in time. They, they're nothing. They're unimportant. And so you get that reaffirmed here where the men are, at least on this totem pole that's been established, they are the lowest of the free peoples. They, they're the, the runts of the family, I suppose. Even the frickin' trees are more important than men. Like, damn, Tolkien, really hitting hard. For sure, like, the environmental argument comes through very, very strong. And the interesting thing about men in Lord of the Rings, that, like, I, I'm very curious, I mean, to, like, finish reading Return of the King and, and see where this ends up is that like they're both I think we're like explicitly told that like they are the future uh-huh. if that makes sense like this is this is what we're rolling with this is the choice and they certainly seem to have greater capacity in many ways than the other creatures not that like the elves are doing nothing or the dwarves are doing nothing or the ants are doing nothing but like men are like much more involved in everything and they're also, yeah, much more like there are men working for Sauron. This reminds me so much of the like, do talking animals have free will <laughs> discussion? <laughs> yes. It feels like men have a greater capacity for like choosing good versus evil versus the other sentient beings a lot more not that they can't be bad i am not nice but like they're more good and normally more passively good and so yeah i think it's a really interesting dynamic because they are both like lowest on the totem pole because they really just are the worst <laughs> yeah but also i mean like they're the most human though uh like they seem like they have more choice in many ways which is interesting, like, especially if you look at the hobbits and how, like, the hobbits seem to have this sort of, like, innate goodness or innate strength in a way, like, in internal strength, which I, I love and find interesting, but I also think is, yeah, interesting in this context of choice. So I fully took that in a, like, very different place than you were taking oh. it, but, like... No, no, you no. You got me started thinking about it. In regards to the hobbits, the idea of... I, I think that's what makes Smeagol so interesting because he is definitively a bad hobbit. He straight <laughs> up murders his cousin to get a ring. We'll, we'll get to that in a second. What I do want to say, there is a sense of fatalism within the book. We touched on that last time where... There is a sense that the elves will diminish. They are diminishing now and they will continue to diminish. Mm. There is a sense that the Ents themselves are diminishing. We get this very um, sad, sad story about how the Ent wives, Ent wives. Uh, have disappeared. 
And it's tragic because without the Entwives, uh, obviously the society will fail because you cannot have new Ents. And the Ents at some point will fail. And it will be up to men to be stewards of the world. And that is a terrifying thought. If, if the men depicted in this book, if these are the people taking over the world after the Ls have left and the Ents have left. I have a really bad feeling about this. To bring it back to the environmental message, there is a sense of urgency here in this book that, mm. that especially now, given what we understand about the climate, is even more pressing where we see landscapes that have been ruined beyond repair. Like here, let me let me just read to you the way Tolkien describes this area that's on the way to the Black Gates. It's just outside the Dead Marshes, and it's on the way to the Black Gate of Mordor. Here nothing lived, not even the leprous growths that feed on rottenness. The gasping pools were choked with ash, and crawling muds, sickly white and gray, as if the mountains had vomited the filth of their entrails upon the lands about. And, and it's so bad that even the sun, even the sunlight was defiled. Like, it is bad news bears out there where the land has been effectively completely destroyed. And it's very clear, it is not coming back. There is no happy ending where... Things will go back to being right in the world. We sort of need to get our act together and figure things out before it's all destroyed. Because once it's destroyed, it's gone for good. Yeah. Well, and even like, I mean, the dead marshes themselves. Right, these right. These marshes filled with like specters. Um, It's hard to tell if they're actually bodies or like specters of bodies. Men that fell in this battle a long, long, long time ago. And so the idea too that like, yeah, war, destruction, these things leave a lasting and unerasable impact on the physical landscape that like, you can't get that back. It's always going to be this place of, of death and destruction. I'm not sure we really ever see, like, no, because there's the, um, so the trees, when they eat the orcs after Helm's Deep, basically all the orc bodies or something get, like, turned into this giant mound and it said nothing grows there. Like, yeah. there's a lot of, like, yeah, you can't fix it. There's no really regrowth after destruction i think we might get a little bit of it next book um with the white tree in gondor but no for largely the natural landscapes once they're impacted they're gone there's no coming back there are two points of hope that i think the book offers and that's where the the sense of urgency comes in one point is with the ents in isengard where after Isengard has been demolished, basically, and flooded, Treebeard says, like, soon enough, trees will come back here into Isengard and make it beautiful again. Will it be fully restored to its former glory? Treebeard doesn't say that. He doesn't give an indication about that. But he does say that it is possible to renew this place. The second moment is when... Frodo and Sam and Gollum 
are walking towards Minas Morgul and they're passing through some wildlands mm. that have been described how back when Sauron was at his peak, he he had come in and ravaged this land. But luckily, he he only had control of this land for a few years or something like that. His corrupting force didn't fully take hold on the land. It was able to come back and be restored and regain some of its former beauty. So in that sense, there is hope, but only if we act now. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it's kind of remarkable that decades before everyone's like, oh yeah, we should probably do something about that. Tolkien was essentially sounding the alarm in his own way way back when. There's there is something very prescient. Prescient? Prescient? I don't know. About these books. They're definitely thinking about things that like still feel relevant in many ways. Mm-hmm. I mean, condemnation of hypermasculinity. Oh yeah. That too. And I mean, as certainly it's interesting too the way in which like with all of these things, there's like the meta level of it all and the way in which the story discusses being a story. I don't know. I feel like they're I, this is so nonsensical at this point, but <laughs> I feel like there's it's all tied together. It's about like, I mean, going back to that quote about like knowing what to do with the times you're given, but also like knowing what to do with the story you're given. I don't know. I think that. Yeah. <laughs> It's all <laughs> It's all tied together, Casey. No, it really is. And um that actually reminds me of a line in the fellowship that um that I really loved, but we never got around to it because there's there was just so much. But Bilbo says that there is never something like there's never a complete story. There the story must always continue and it's always up to somebody else to carry it on. Yes. Yes. And uh Sam and Frodo riff off of that in this book. Um, when they're talking about, I mean, they're literally putting themselves in the story. And let me find the passage. Ah, okay, okay, okay. They're joking around about, like, how someday, you know, they're... Oh, and it's it's interesting, too. I think this is part of what made me think of, like, what to do with the story you're in, where they're asking about, like... I think Frodo calls out and he's like, Gollum, would you like to be the hero of the story? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love that moment. That's such a cool, cool moment that uh, we'll, we'll talk yes, about that in a second. Here we yeah. go. Um, here's, <laughs> I found the exact line I want. Because they're talking about how once you're in the middle of the story, you don't necessarily know how it's going to end, etc., etc. Like what the best stories are to get landed in. And then Sam says, why to think of it, because he's just been talking about, like, sort of the legacy of everything in this world. And he says, why to think of it? We're in the same tale still. It's going on. Don't the great tales never end? And then Frodo says, no, they never end as tales, but the people in them come and go when their parts ended. So, yeah, there's a there's very much the idea of, like, we are all narratively always in a story. And it's our choice. Like, our choice isn't what story we're in. It's who we decide to be in the story we're in. And so, yeah, if want to think about our current <laughs> everything. <laughs> yeah. 
our choice is we don't get to choose whether or not we're in a story about climate change, but we can choose what to do in our story about climate change. There's a fascinating thing about that passage that you read from where what Sam is talking about, he's he's name dropping all these past heroes that that mm-hmm. we as readers and they as characters have been learning about through their interactions with the elves. Baron and Luthien took on frickin' Morgoth, who's essentially the Satan character in, in the lore of Middle-earth. They fought Balrogs back then. It's like all these amazing things. And then here are these two measly hobbits sidled with this impossible task. And it's just like, what hope do any of us have that they will accomplish that goal? And the message here is not, well, it's impossible. Give up and let's just all die together. It's like, no, we, we've been given this task and we're not up for it, but we're going to do it anyway, because that is what we have been expected to do. And that is what we're going to try to do. And, and there's that very, really touching moment at the end where Sam is mourning over what he thinks is Frodo's corpse. And just being mm-hmm. like, what do I do now? What can I do? I can't possibly do this, but there's nobody else but me. So I'm going to try. Mm. I am going to try. It's not the most hopeful message that like, yeah, we face seemingly insurmountable <laughs> obstacles, but the best, at least we can try to do something about it. That's not a very hopeful message, but it's. A necessary one. I think it's a message that it's fighting despair in a more realistic way. It's acknowledging that things are going to be hard, but there's still something we can do about it. And in mm. that way, I think very prescient, prescient message to hear today and for the foreseeable future. We as people in this world are going to be facing a lot of hard obstacles going forward. But if frickin' Sam can walk into Mordor by himself seemingly, then man, what can we do, you know? Well, and I think, I, I want to say too, because I think it's really important, we're told multiple times in the Two Towers that Sam isn't a very hopeful person. <laughs> yeah. We're explicitly told he he keeps his spirit's hope up not because he has a great hope for the future but like because he like can (laughs) i think it's interesting that like the book is kind of anti-hope like you shouldn't rely on having hope to go forward it shouldn't be about like well maybe i can do it it should be about like well i probably can't do it but like i'm going to try anyways like you don't need for there to be hope in order to do the right thing and to like do the brave thing. I think that's so important because I think we don't need people hoping there are things. We need people doing things. Mm. And I think Tolkien's saying that. Morgan, let's, let's run for president in hopefully 2028. <laughs> we'll, we'll make a great ticket. What are we going to do tomorrow night? The same thing we do every night, Pinky. Try to take over the world. It is fascinating because... Sam rides that line where he 
he's very simple. And I, I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean that in he's very down home. He's very rustic. Mm. There are a couple of times where it's described how he helps Frodo laugh. And in that simple act of helping Frodo laugh, they feel their spirits renewed. But in a lot of ways, Sam is also very cynical. He's very cynical about Gollum. We'll get into that because it plays a vital role in this very, very, very significant moment in Smeagol's redemption arc. But yeah, it's I, I like what, what you're saying, that the book literally starts with three <laughs> people running on foot yeah. across. I think it's described as 40, 50 leagues. I don't know how much a much of a league is, but it's a far distance. Actually, let me let me let's let's just confirm. Gonna math this right now, aka ask the internet to do the math. Well, yes. <laughs> okay, so one league equals three point four five two three three eight three four miles. Okay, that's just absurd. <laughs> so let's just take three point four five. Carry blah blah blah. They ran in the matter of like three, four days. I'm not sure. 138 miles on foot to look for hobbits that for all they knew, these dudes were dead. But they do it because it's the right thing. If there was even the tiniest possible chance that the hobbits were alive, then the right thing to do in that moment is to go after them and try to save them. Things are hopeless. That doesn't matter. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's there's a moment, too, um, where I think Frodo has some despair happening. Ah, yes, here it is. Oh, wait, no, I found the, the sequel point to that. One sec, let me <laughs> find the exact line I want. Gosh darn it. Uh-huh. <sighs> it's like when they're like heading into Minas Morgul, he has this moment of despair. Uh, yes, I, I found it. Okay, you read that one and then I will okay. read the sequel moment. Uh, so this is when Minas Morgul is emptying of all of its soldiers. Frodo stirred, and suddenly his heart went out to Faramir. The storm has burst at last, he thought. This great array of spears and swords is going to Osgiliath. Will Faramir get across in time? He guessed it, but did he know the hour? And who can now hold the forts when the king of the nine riders comes? And other armies will come. I am too late. All is lost. I tarried on the way. All is lost. Even if my errand is performed, no one will ever know. There will be no one I can tell. It will be in vain. Overcome with weakness, he wept. And still the host of Morgul crossed the bridge. So it's this moment of like, yeah, there's no hope. Everything's going to be crap and awful. But then shortly after that, he like overcomes that feeling. And it says, despair had not left him, but the weakness had passed. He even smiled grimly, feeling now as clearly as a moment before he had felt the opposite. That what he had to do, he had to do if he could. And that whether Faramir or Aragorn or Elrond or Galadriel or Gandalf or anyone else ever knew about it was beside the purpose. What he had to do, he had to do! Frodo is good. Sam is good. Ugh. At its heart, 
Lord of the Rings is just your typical good versus evil story. But it doesn't come in with that very like, I think of it like in comic books where Mm. evil has been defeated and good has won and everything is right in the world. Lord of the Rings gets away from that. It, It really undermines that expectation of fantasy. There isn't a happy ending in the way that you expect it to be. And not to spoil uh, uh, the return of the king, but there's a very key moment at the end where Gandalf is talking about evil itself isn't actually defeated. We've only defeated this one particular individual. Mm. The sense it's really just like perseverance is really what it is. I think that's a very unique quality of Lord of the Rings and why these stories have stuck around as long as they have, because I can imagine myself in this role as Frodo or Sam, where I'm just like, everything sucks. And I don't have, not to cut myself down here or anything, but I'm not a hero. I'm not a brave person. And and I think you see that in these characters. They just want to give up all the freaking time. And yet they persist. And that is just so powerful. It's like, okay, if Frodo can keep going, maybe I can keep going too. Yeah. You know what? Gus Morgan, Frodo should run for president. Who who the (laughs) hell are we? Wait a minute. There's more? Catch part three of our discussion of part two of Lord of the Rings next week on Reread. See you later. <laughs>